Anyway, so um, we have been going through the book of Daniel here um, for a little while now, and um, we are actually wrapping it up now. So this is our very last Sunday in the book of Daniel, and um, you just want to click the, click the Daniel slide on there? There we go. Okay, cool. Um, so we are finishing Daniel up, and we're going to actually go through two chapters of the book of Daniel today, chapters 11 and 12. We're just going to kind of sandwich them. They're part of one long vision. Um, actually, last week, uh, chapter 10 was kind of the setting up of what we're going to talk about today. Um, and the big, the big idea for today's sermon and this passage in particular is, is God, it, it, history is faithful to accomplish God's purpose. He works his purpose out through history. And we're going to see that happen um, because what Daniel gets here is actually a vision of what's going to happen for the next like several centuries in the region um, that, that Israel is in. And we're going to see how God works through that to deliver his people. And I think a cool part of it is we're actually going to kind of tie that into the start of Advent um, because um, the really the end of this period is around the time that Jesus shows up. So it actually it flows really well. So I'm excited for us to kind of do that today. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to quickly summarize chapter 11, which is the history part of it. I didn't think you guys wanted a history lecture today. I wasn't totally sure. I, I went back and forth all week about you know if you guys would, would enjoy that or not. But uh, I decided ultimately to land on just quick summarizing it. Um, and then we'll go through chapter 12. And what we see there is Daniel has a conversation uh, with a couple of angels who have been responsible for giving the vision to Daniel. And, um, and they talk about how uh, we should respond to the vision that he just had and, and more, um, uh, more, more narrowly um, how we should respond to God's control of history and his working out of his purpose through it, all right? So let's walk through the history. I'm just going to kind of bump, uh, run through just the big parts of it and explain it a little bit. This is taking place several centuries after the time that Daniel was receiving this vision. So you're going to get a little bit of history of the region. Now, it starts out with someone you're probably all familiar with, Alexander the Great, or as Julie called him a few weeks ago when she kind of brought him up, Alexander the Goat, the greatest of all time. Um, Alexander, uh, if you know his story, he swept through that region of the world and, and took over almost all of it. In the span of a few years, he, what, he was just barely th- a couple years over 30 when he died, and he had this massive empire he had, he had um, taken over. What happens in, in the passage is it details how this, you know, he, he swiftly runs through, but then he, gets ta- he, he takes down Persia. He takes over Persia, which remember, they're in charge the, as, as Daniel is receiving this vision. Persia's the one who kind of is, is over Daniel and over Israel. Alexander takes them out, and then he dies not long after. And so his empire, you know, after a short amount of time, fractures into four parts. And, and what happens is Israel gets sandwiched between two of those four parts that it's fractured in. So the vision really focuses on those two empires. They're the, they're the focus. And those two empires are just called the king in the north, the king in the north, right? Uh, and then the king in the south, or kingdom of, in the south. Now, um, there is a big rivalry between these two nations that we're going to find out. Um, one of them is obviously north of Israel or Judah, and that is the Seleucid Empire um, or the Syrian Empire. 
And the second one is to the south, that's the uh, Ptolemaic or Ptolemy um, or Egyptian empire. Okay, so Ptolemy is the name of the first king who rules. Seleucid is the name of the first king who rules in the north. Egypt and Syria are the two nations, generally speaking. And these two nations have some really intense bad blood between each other. Okay, and actually the chorus of Bad Blood the Song by Taylor Swift actually uh, details their rivalry perfectly. So I'm just going to run through that and explain briefly what happens. So the chorus of Bad Blood starts out, because baby, now we've got bad blood. And this bad blood goes back and forth across multiple generations. And in the, in the, um, in the passage, we see many different kings, sons and daughters of these initial two kings who go back and forth. And it's just a list of the ways that they're trying to invade each other and get revenge on one another for all this past bad blood between them. Okay? But just like with Taylor Swift, it used, you know it used to be mad love. Actually, these two empires started out being allies at the very beginning. Um, they actually um, were... were, were kind of allies together against the other two successors of Alexander, the, those other two kingdoms. So, so one of them actually kind of got kicked out of his, his region, so he was able to uh, stay uh, safe with the other one for a little while, and then he got his land back, and then for no real reason that we can figure out at least, he invaded, um, invaded that empire, okay? And so take a look at what you've done by Taylor, is, is looking back on, like, we've, we both have done something to, to make this really bad, right? Okay, and then the song ends, because baby, now we've got bad blood. Hey, now we've got problems. I don't think we can solve them. You made a really deep cut, and baby, now we've got bad blood. Say so both these sides wrong each other. There's different incursions into each other's territory. They, at one point, try to have a political marriage where they bring the two together, um, but the husband of the marriage decides to get back with his ex-wife, and so he poisons uh, the daughter of the, of the southern kingdom, and obviously that doesn't help things, right? And so it's just back and forth uh, between these two nations. And what happens is there's some collateral damage in, uh, between the two battles, the t- these two empires, and that ends up impacting. Israel. And so the, the king who comes out of the north, who really does, who really goes into Israel and messes things up pretty bad, is a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Julie talked about him um, in chapter 8. Remember, he gets brought up. He is uh, the ram in the passage, right, Julie? Um, he's the one who kind of goes out, and, and he's like, he's a major bad dude uh, for the Israel. He, he's consciousness, he's the one who causes a lot of problems. The Maccabees, if you've heard of the Maccabean revolt, this is about the stuff that that, uh, Antiochus IV had had done. And so there's kind of a couple of parties within Israel that are going back and forth. One of them wants to side with Egypt. One wants to side with the northern kingdom, with Antiochus. And um, so they are kind of fighting. And it's ironic because this is the same stuff uh, put into exile in the first place. Right? So here they are engaging in that same behavior, even though they, they've been allowed to return to that homeland. Um, and Antiochus, he manipulates some different events, and he does a lot of stuff to just really anger these Jews who are trying to be faithful. He sets up uh, a bunker next to the, t- a military bunker next to the temple that you kind of have to pass through in order to get to the temple. You have to have been a, a Greek citizen 
order to get into the temple. Um, He sacrifices a pig to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, um, where only the high priest was supposed to enter, and sacrifices were supposed to be made to Yahweh alone. Antiochus just blows by all that, doesn't care one lick about it. Um, And he, and and actually the name Epiphanes is, is a, it's not his last name, okay? It's actually a name applied to himself and what it means is God manifest. So he was he was basically calling himself a God, a major affront to uh, the people of Israel. So it talks about the stuff that he's going to do but what happens is when we get into verses 36 uh, to 45 which is the end of the passage um, we actually run into a few issues in the text and it's, it, what happens here is what it seems like it's being applied to Antiochus things that don't actually happen to him. It talks about how he's going to um, rule over many countries, and that actually doesn't happen with Antiochus. So we have a hard time reconciling what's happening in the text here with the actual history. And so there's a few ways to go about this, and and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because when we went through Daniel 5, we talked about another thing that seemed like a historical discrepancy between the text and the actual history as we know it from outside of the Bible. We talked about how we go about reconciling those two things sometimes. Um, and And so you can go back and listen or watch that sermon if you want, but the big point of it is that Scripture is faithful to accomplish God's purpose, right? And so if we don't quite understand how it's playing that out, we can rest in the fact that it points to Jesus, and that is the ultimate purpose of Scripture is to uh, reveal Jesus to us, to reveal the gospel to us. And, and when things don't make perfect sense, we can, if we believe Jesus rose from the dead, right, which the scriptures attest to and started off this movement that has lasted for 2,000 years that we're a part of as we sit in this very room, then we can believe that that scripture ultimately uh, is faithful to do what God wanted it to, even if we don't understand every single part of it. Now, one, uh, one way that some scholars have reconciled some of this, um, some of the problems in the text is to talk about like a telescoping effect, right? Now, I've never really used a telescope, but I've seen enough of them in movies and stuff to know that you can fold them up into like one big ring, right? But then you can pull them apart. So you have three parts of the telescope that are pushed into one, right? When it, when it pulls out. And, and, and so th- these scholars say, this could be what's happening in the text here. There's like a telescoping of history. And what's happening is actually, it's moving beyond what Antiochus does, and it's talking about a time at the end. And, and actually, that passage actually says, it talks about how in the time of the end, God will act and God will do these things. So we could potentially read it as, as, as telescoping out and saying, there is an Antiochus, but there will be many Antiochuses who will come and who will establish their rule all across the world. And eventually God is going to intervene and do something about that. The passage talks about unparalleled distress. Uh, the language actually shifts from being uh, more straightforward to more cosmic and more mythical. And there's even one scholar who, who thinks that that this is he doesn't doesn't look at this as God's word. Just says, hey, this is like the the author just got it wrong. He just messed up. He didn't know his history, or he was writing it after the fact, or right what before it happened. He was guessing at what happened, but he was wrong. He even says. But the language seems to shift. Something seems to happen here that seems to hint at a bigger conflict than just the local conflict of what's going on with Antiochus here. All right? And then, and, and another reason why this could be the case is when we get to chapter 12, which we're going to jump into here in just a second, um, the answer is, is not uh, something that seems very 
uh, located in that time and place, but the answer is actually resurrection and the ultimate hope uh, that God will do something to vindicate the, the Israelites who die because of Antiochus and, and other um, political battles that Israel gets caught up in. The answer is that they will be raised again someday. And this is really the first time in the New Testament that we, we get this vision for what God is going to do in raising the dead, in, in establishing a new creation where we will reign and rule with God perfectly as, just as Christ was raised from the dead. Okay? So let's just walk through the passage, chapter 12, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we do with the fact that God, our God is sovereign, that he is in control, he rules history. How do we respond? What does that mean for our daily lives? All right, so let's get into chapter 12. We'll just run through it, and then we'll make some of those observations. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Remember, this is the time when Antiochus, supposedly in the passage, the, the, this king takes over the whole world. The great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. All right? This is what I was talking about before with the resurrection being the ultimate answer to the problem of Antiochus or people like Antiochus who wreak havoc in the world. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is what will happen to those who are raised. They will, they will shine brightly. They will be magnified and glorified and righteous. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it take before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Okay, so Daniel's kind of, uh, he's sitting there, he's dazed by what just happened, and there, are, there was the angel, probably Gabriel, who was giving uh, the message to him, and another one shows up, and Gabriel himself is a little bit confused, like, okay, so I just told Daniel all this stuff, but I don't even fully understand it. And so he's asking the angel, who is a superior angel to him, uh, so, like, when is this? stuff actually going to take place? When, when will it all happen? Because he doesn't even know. And, and, and the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has finally broken, all these things will be completed. I, this is Daniel again. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this be? Okay, so the, the angel who gets asked by the other angel, when's this going to take place? Like, I don't, I don't even really understand this. His answer is, is equally cryptic. It will a time, times, and half a time. And we could, we could try to dive in and figure out the exact meaning and try to calculate it out, which a lot of scholars have tried to do this in the past. And ultimately, it doesn't really work out. It's hard to find a good definitive answer for this stuff. And I think the real answer, that, that what he's saying here is, it will take place... And, and God knows when it will take place, but it's not really up to us to know that. Like, we need to trust God that when this stuff takes place, it's because God has ordained it to take place in that way, and only he really understands it. And, and we are left to trust him now as a result. So Daniel hears that, and now he's like, okay, I have questions too, dude. And so he starts asking his own questions. 
he asks, and he asks him, um, what will the outcome of all this be? And, and this angel replies to him, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. So he doesn't really give him an answer. He just says, just go. Just, just go and, and live your life trusting God. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end, you will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay, so a furthering of this, where he's like, okay, actually, it will be 1,290 days, and then he's like, but then it will be 1,335 days, and then he doesn't even explain it. And he just says, just go your way in the end, all right? Just go out and, and, and be Daniel, continue to live righteously, to seek God out, and to trust him, because God knows the interpretation of these days. That's his answer, and that's literally how the book ends, all right? It's very, like... It doesn't wrap up as nicely as we would like, but it leaves us in a place of believing that uh, God has um, control. He rules history, and, it's, and we are, are, are left believing that. All right? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how we respond to God's rule of history. We actually have a couple of answers within the text for, for how we're supposed to, to live out the same questions and, and not quite understanding how it's going to play out that we see Daniel have here. And so we're just going to dwell on that, and then we're going we're to wrap it up. So there are two primary ways in the passage. I'm going to get to those in a second, but I want to talk first about how we're in exile, right? That's been the big theme of this, of this uh, uh, walk through the book of Daniel is that we, like Daniel, are stuck in exile, right? And we're struggling to live that out with the pressures of living in a place that is not ultimately our home and trying to live faithful to God in the midst of that. Now, when we're in exile, we are going to be challenged to, to, to respond to God's control or rule of history in two ways that I, I believe that are, are not correct. And I want to talk about those before I get into the way the passage tells us to live it out. So those two ways are to, to seek out radical autonomy or to live with no responsibility. All right, so let me talk about the first one here first, radical autonomy. Oops, sorry. Um, so this would be like resistance to God's purpose or his rule of history. And in the book, we see plenty of resistance to God and his control. The Prince of Persia, remember last week we talked about the spiritual being who, who is trying to stop God's purpose from going forth. And so he's trying to tangle with the, the deliverer of the message to try to stop it from being uh, initiated. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, we see at different places, stands up against God and, and says he's the king of history and he can live it out however he wants. Belshazzar does this as well. And then the different kings in the prophecy that we just talked about, these are all people who are trying to live out their own rule of history, trying to create that for themselves. And we do the same thing, right? We are trying to also control our own history, even if that means resistance to God's own rule. And the reason we do this is because we've inherited a culture that tells us that it's your job to control your own destiny. At every turn, you need to have it all figured out. You need to map it all out. You need to get, you know, to, to to grab everything and to pull it under your control and to make sure it all plays out just the way that it does. Because you can't trust anyone else with your own well-being, right? Only you truly, truly know the best way to live for yourself. Anyone who tries to come in and tell you a different way to live doesn't actually understand it, okay? So you got to take that for yourself. Um, 
Christian Smith is a, uh, a sociologist at the, at the University of Notre Dame. He, he wrote a, 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 he's written a lot of books, but one of them that's really good is called Souls in Transition, and it just, it's, it's a lens at the religious and spiritual lives of what he calls emerging adults. A lot of people in this room would fit that, just the, 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 the time span of, of when you were born, you, we would all fit in that. And he basically says, we've grown up uh, hearing that we are a sovereign self. No one else controls us except for us. And, it, and so we have complete control and autonomy over our own lives. And the idea of a God who is in control is a threat to that. Uh, so I have a, <laughs> I remember when I was growing up, um, I, I, my, my parents and my parents' church was really big into the rapture for a time, right? This is something you guys have heard of, and the Left Behind books made it really popular. And some Christians believe that there will be a time when God will come back and he'll, he'll snatch a bunch of, you know, the, the Christians away from the earth, and they'll go to heaven with him, and then the rest of the earth will, will live on for a time um, on, its, on its own, and, and kind of, it, it's, a, it's a whole thing. You guys can go Google it if you want to. Not all Christians believe that, but some do, and my parents' church was really talked a lot about that. I was terrified of the rapture as a kid for a lot of reasons, but one of them was that I just, you know, there was all this talk about how, like, this seems like the time when Jesus is going to come back. It's going to happen, could happen any day now, so we got to be prepared. And I'm, like, 12 years old, and I'm like, Jesus, please, can you wait till I'm, like, retired and, like, have already done all the things I want to do before you come back? It would, it would really mess with my plans if your plans um, bulldoze those. Right, and so I was really, uh, really like didn't want that to happen because I had a lot of goals in my life, right? And I was trying to do things to. I'm, I was like 12, so I didn't really wasn't really doing that much to to set up control of my life. But I remember having this thought very clearly, like I really want to do a lot of stuff, and it would really suck if God's plans like messed mine up, right? I really didn't want that, right? And I think we're we're all in that place um, where we're, we're hoping that God's plans don't mess with ours. We really hope the things that we have, that we have planned out for ourselves, are line up with what God wants to do because we don't like the idea that his plans might mess ours up. Okay, so we resist it. We push back against it. We, we want radical autonomy. So that's where a lot of people are at. But what happens is oftentimes we bounce to the other side of the pendulum, all right? And we just don't want any responsibility whatsoever, okay? We, we love it when Jesus sometimes takes the wheel for us, right? We just, we just would love it if, if um, God could control everything. We don't have to do anything, and everything will work out perfectly for us. Now, we typically only get to that place when we feel overwhelmed or uh, out of control. Like, we, we realize, wow, I can't control everything. Like, I, as much as I want to, I, I want to control my fate. I want to control my career, I want to control my family, I want to control, you know, getting married, all that stuff. We feel that pressure, and we realize we don't have the ability to control that as much as we think we do. And so then we bounce to a place where we're just like, God, please just take it all, figure it out for me. I'm just going to sit in my hands and maybe pray a little bit and trust that you'll do it. You'll take care of it all for me. All right? And as soon as we stop feeling overwhelmed, we're like, I'll take the, the wheel back. Very, thank you very much, God. Okay? But we bounce back and forth through this. We just want... Um, we just want to, to, to have everything work out well for us, and we want to be the ones that kind of control that, all right, unless we feel overwhelmed, and then we bounce to this other place. But make no mistake, we'll bounce back to the place of radical autonomy as soon as it fits us, okay? So these are the, the two uh, wrong ways to respond 
to God and his control. Now, in the passage, there are two correct ways that the angel tells Daniel that he should respond to the idea that God rules history and everything that takes place within it. All right? And those two things are, first, to have endurance, and then, second, to have hope for God's purpose to be fulfilled. So let's talk about endurance first. All right, so in Daniel uh, 12, verses 13, the first part of it, remember he says, this is the very last verse of the whole book. He says, as for you, this is right after Daniel had been like, dude, what's going to happen? Can you please tell me what is going to happen? Because I need to know so I can plan accordingly, right? I can, and I can have some control over my destiny. So it would be really great if, if you would interpret the, those strange numbers and you know, time, time, and half a time to tell me exactly what's going to take place and when it will take place so I can know, so I can tell the rest of the people of Israel and we can control it. And the angel just says, just go your way until the end, okay? Go out to the, place that, the places that you're supposed to go and trust God. Believe that he is working and you don't need to know exactly what's taking place and it will work itself out in the end and have endurance in that. Just keep getting up day after day, continuing to trust God, going and doing the things that God has put in front of you, the good works that he has for you, whatever it looks like in your specific place to follow him. Um, Who's run a marathon or a half marathon in this room? Okay, a few people in here have done it. All right, so I remember I ran my first half marathon in college, and I didn't train very well for it. Okay, and so for a lot of the race, I was like literally didn't know if I'd finish it. (laughs) I was like, the whole time, I'm like, I'm running, and I'm still going, and I'm trying to keep up with everybody, and I haven't died yet, but I have no guarantee that I'm not going to die before I get to the end of this race. All right. Now, if you, I ran a second half marathon uh, a few years later, and I trained a lot harder for that, and I was able to have endurance to keep running that thing, because I knew I could run it, because I had trained well for it, right? So I had, I had a guarantee that it was going to work out okay, and so even though I was getting to feel really tired, I was getting to feel, like, feel the effect of running a half marathon on my body, I knew that I was going to be able to finish it, and that gave me endurance or gave me boosts throughout the run to know I could finish it. Knowing God, that God is in control of history gives us endurance to run the race set before us as well. Because we, we don't have to guess whether or not we're going to finish the race, right? We know that that's going to happen even though we don't know exactly what twists and turns it's going to take. We know we'll finish it. And that kind of can spur us on as we go. All right, and so whatever that, whatever that stuff that we have in front of us is, whatever the, the spaces that we're in, that we're, we have to, whatever our race looks like, we can have endurance in that. And in the book of Daniel, we've talked about uh, the different things, the different ways that we respond in exile. In, in chapter 1 and 2, we talked a lot about blessing our city, right? Seeing it as our goal in, in a place that's not our home, to actually go out into places that might not believe what we do, might even be hostile to what we believe, and to seek the well-being and blessing of it. That's, that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to find excellence in our work or whatever our vocation is. Whatever it is that we are called to do, we should seek out excellence in it um, and, and use that to try to bless people and expand God's kingdom out. Um, in, in remaining humble and not becoming prideful like Nebuchadnezzar, right? Even if we find a lot of excellence in our work, right? In remaining humble and believing that that 
success, that excellence ultimately comes from God himself and is not derived from us. Um, We've talked about in reading and trusting God's word on a regular basis, even when it's hard, we don't understand exactly what's going on inside of it, uh, to continue to be faithful, to go back to that and believe that it will be faithful to accomplish the purpose that God has set it out for. And then in suffering, we we talked about this in the, the fiery furnace and in the lion's den, Daniel and his friends experience suffering and pain and hardship in exile, all right? And we are called to continue to endure in the midst of that, no matter how hard it gets. And we can do this because we know that our God rules history, and he is working everything behind the scenes, even when we don't see it. Often, very rarely, will we have a good picture of what God is doing, but that doesn't mean he's not working in some way. Um, I think we, we, we sometimes think about what God is doing, um, like, it's time to set the thermostat in the house, right? So if, if you have one of those automated thermostats, you set it in the morning so that the, it goes down, and at 4 o'clock it kicks on again so it's nice and warm when you get home at 5 o'clock, right? You preset it, and then you forget it, right? That's not how God's sovereignty works. God did not just set the thermostat at the beginning of history, and now we're just trying to figure out exactly what the pattern is and when we know when the heat's going to come back on or when it's going to be cold or whatever, right? God's rule of history is, is, is much, that, that's like a picture of it, a very detached God, but our God is an engaged God who is with us in the middle of things. It's more like a parent who is teaching a kid to ride a bike, right? He, they're in control of the situation. They'll catch them if they fall, um, but you got to pedal too. You got to do some work as well, and you got you to drive that bike, and your parent is going to be there with you alongside you. That is how God is involved in ruling history with us. Even if we don't exactly know what we're doing, he does, and he is there to catch us when we fall, to help us to um, get balanced right until we can um, continue to endure in that. And so whatever, whatever place it is that you are in, trust that God is working in the midst of that, right? Whatever. At Res City, we have, got, we have got people that do all sorts of different things with their lives. We have social workers, teachers. We have stay-at-home parents. We have nurses and doctors. We have accountants, um, IT workers, physical and occupational therapists. We have civil engineers. We have students. I, and I'm not even naming half, half the things that people do here, right? So we all have these unique places that we need to find endurance in. And, and God, we need to trust that God is working in the midst of that so that we can, we can live that out, all right? So re- reflectively and prayerfully ask, how can I have endurance to work towards God's purpose? What is God's purpose as it works out in my specific place in life, wherever I'm at? How, is, how can I find endurance in that? Continue to get up continue to do good, and trust that God is working as well because we know it's going to work out for good in the end. And we know it's going to work out for good in the end because of the second thing, that we can have hope that God's purpose will be fulfilled. Hope that is animating, that's energizing. It's a hope of a good ending for God's rule and not a bad ending. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but we'll go back to it. In a couple of places, um, the angel tells Daniel specifically, listen, dude, you go back, go your way till the end, and you will rest eventually. You're going to die before this all um, works itself out. But then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. He's talking about resurrection here. He's talking about the ultimate hope that we have as Christians. And we have this inheritance to live in an age that is not ruled by Antiochus Epiphanes and Caesar Augustuses and Hitlers and all the worst leaders that we have been enduring as a society for centuries, right? 
up until the very day that we live now, that we have not escaped this, but we have hope that we will someday live in a world where bad blood between nations and the pettiness of rulers is not the way that the world is governed. But it is a, w- a, a world that is governed by a God who takes away the power of death. And here's how he takes away the power of death, by raising us from the dead and raising his son from the dead to give us hope. And the way that he accomplishes that, as we come to this Advent season, it's good to remember that the way that he accomplishes this is not in some grand, uh, you know, showing up to smash his enemies, just like we saw with the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, right? Coming, coming in, letting bad blood be the, the, the thing that drives everything. And it's not through some big, like if we were going to do this today, if we were in charge of making God's purposes take place in the world today, like we would have some big ad campaign, right? Probably. We would blast it out on social media. You know, we'd make sure everybody, you know, sees all of our pretty uh, uh, Instagram posts. We'd have a really, you know, good-looking spokesperson probably out there promoting it and, and making a big deal out of it. And God picks the least, uh, least intuitive way, at least for us, possible to accomplish his purpose and, and to, to give us a hope of new life by a small baby being born, by, by a new life itself being born in this humble manger, right, in a small town in this backwater country called Israel that nobody at the time really thinks much of. He accomplishes his purpose through that way. Entering in this vulnerable, small, whisper-like way. All right, and so the hope that we have that, that God is going to do something about the problem of, 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 that Daniel is wrestling with, right? That Daniel doesn't know the answer to, that he's trusting God. We're at the other end of it where we know that God has shown up to do something. And we celebrate that time now in Advent, all right, so this is a good shift now to, to the Advent season. As we head into this time of Christmas, I hope that you can remember that and not be swayed by flashing lights or, or, or other big things going on, but focus on this still, small child being born, which gives us hope and endurance to go and do whatever it is that we do. So what we're going to do is we're going to close um, with communion just like we do every single Sunday morning here. Um, please, uh, please come, even if it's your first time here, take communion with us as long as we just ask that you're a follower of Jesus. Um, and so we'll enter into a time of, of communion. You can come up to the table here and take some bread and, and take some juice and drink it. We'll have a couple more worship songs and... and, and um, and then uh, during that as well, if you need prayer for anything, right? If you need prayer for endurance in some place that you're at right now, if you need prayer for hope, if you need prayer for anything at all, well, uh, Krista will be in the back and she'll, she will be um, uh, there available to pray for you, okay? So please take advantage of that. Let's pray as we enter into a time of worship. Father, we thank you that you are the one who rules history. It's not someone else. It's not up to us to rule our own history, but that you are working out your purpose and your purpose is is the bringing of a small child who will be the one who saves us from our sins, who makes us new, and who gives us hope of new life someday in the future. Lord, we thank you that you have done that. You have defeated uh, all of the tyrants of the world. God, all of them, you've defeated them by the birth of a small child who who grew up to, to do signs and wonders, to heal people, to preach your word, to die for us, and then to rise again himself to give us hope that we will follow in his footsteps someday if we are in him. 
I pray that you would give us endurance and hope as we leave this place, as we go into whatever places that we occupy, wherever you've called us to live out, um, live out your glory, Lord, in this place of exile. Give us that hope and the endurance to, to accomplish that. We pray all this in the name of that small child who, who was born so many years ago. Amen. Amen.